Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. This week, we have three long stories in store for you. I just know that you're going to enjoy them. Let us begin, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm camping with a group of friends. Someone has been messing with our campsite. Written by Decorative Gentleman. Her locket is small, slippery, a thin chain-like sewing thread and a clasp for nimble patient fingers. I could never hope to open any part of it now. My hands shake, my scrub, delicate little filigree, an anatomical heart, golden copper, and blood. Inside, there's a picture of her. May, opposite a picture of us, all smiling, all happy, all alive. For a while, I thought that I had survivor's guilt. I read about it, searching for someone else's tidy words for how I felt. PTSD with one measure of empathy and another of overthinking. A vestige of these horrible acts originally. I should have and why didn't I at their most insidious. But I don't feel guilty, not really. I feel lonely and I feel afraid. I still feel afraid. I did blame myself for what happened at one point. I had been drinking a lot. Maybe if I hadn't been, I would have noticed something, taken the signs more seriously. But I guess that we had all been drinking. We felt safe. Three friends camping. Normal. May was supposed to move to Philly for a job that you couldn't stop her from smiling about. She was proud, excited, finding a bona fide adult at 28. Peter and I were happy for her. We were, and our weekend was supposed to be a last hurrah. But she was leaving and our trio was going to be different. Less fun and spontaneous and more grown up. Peter's wife Corinne was pregnant, so that would have forced a change too. But they had been trying for a while. So May and I had gotten used to the idea of being a spiritual aunt and uncle. Peter's baby would eventually learn to make cocktails and we would invite the little thing into our group as an apprentice. Corinne wasn't thrilled when I planned aloud, but eventually she laughed despite herself. Peter laughed more, infectiously big and thunderous, a husky laugh that could shake the shadows from the corners of a room and make you wonder how you ever had felt crappy in the first place. Man, I miss that. I need that. He had one of those laughs the first night as May frowned indignantly and I smiled over one of my several whiskeys. He had brought a Tupperware for something that he had called Cherokee Stew for dinner. May was giving him a woke earful about appropriation and Peter had made a joke about possibly being part Cherokee. They fought like friends, a stupid circular argument, goading but drinking all the while. Eventually, Peter said that May didn't have to eat it, that she could have trail mixer or granola bar. Oh, I'm gonna eat it, because unlike your pasty butt, I am part Cherokee. Silence. 
My love first, and then Peter, and then all of us, and then. Whoa, what the heck was that? Peter's eyes lost their crinkle. We had all heard it. A shriek in the darkness, piercing and desperate. I don't know, it sounded like a. I second guessed myself, not wanting to ruin the mood, but May was happy to oblige. A woman. Should we... What do we do? We waited a moment and listened. Nothing but the chirp of crickets and the crackle of logs. Uh, maybe it's just kids. Peter offered a solemn and hopeful. She, whatever it was, it didn't say help, right? May was tense, searching the air with her ear the way that a deer might. Yeah, but would someone really scream help? Or would they just scream? Well, we don't really even know if it was a someone, do we? I mean, we could call the cops, but... May seemed to turn my suggestion over in her mind. No, no, you're right. They wouldn't do anything anyway. It did sound a lot like a woman, though, didn't it? Peter and I shared a discussion in a glance. It did. It totally did. But she's alright, right? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe she got tickled or something. Corrine shrieks when she gets tickled. You see, it could be anything. It's fine. Yeah, right. Look, May, if we hear it again, well, I don't know. Go look or something. But for now, I don't hear anything. Do you? I tried to be a diplomatic, but it was late and dark and we were drunk and comfortable by the fire. May nodded, shook it off, and chuckled uneasily. More bourbon for your nerves, milady. Peter shook the bottle. Uh, yeah, thanks, Pete. We didn't hear a thing after that. Just mental echoes of a scream. A short scream, a long one, painful and joyous. An hour later, we were eating s'mores. Playing drinking games and the scream had become a dozen different, vaguely plausible memories. By midnight, we were all in our tents, in our sleeping bags, separate rooms in the quiet cacophony of an uncertain wilderness. A rustle of leaves, the groan of a maple tree, the thrum of my drunken pulse, footsteps, the synthetic squeak of my sleeping bag. A cleared throat, a snore, a distant scream, another, a bad dream of fearful nothing, and then sleep. The next day came cool and gray with Peter humming along to a Bluetooth speaker and May clutching a cup of coffee, pretty and bundled and drawn. How'd you sleep? I croaked at her. Oh good, just hung over she smiled meekly and eclipsed her face behind her mug. Yeah, I'm with you. I commiserated. Hair of the dog? May declined, rubbed asleep from her heavy eyes. Peter, annoyingly chipper, lifted a bottle and eyed it flirtatiously against the low morning light. Mac, I'll join you, Jack. A little Irish coffee, er, Kentucky. Sounds like a grand way to start the day. Peter must have slept well. He had the inevitable habit of turning a gutful of liquor 
into a head full of energy. He had been that way at 25 and at 30. He hadn't changed. He was a little just rounder around the belly and decidedly more bearded. May and I soaked miserably in contrast, slouching and moaning over our headaches as Peter merrily sang bluegrass in a terrible falsetto. He was cooking sausage into scrambled eggs in a cast iron skillet. Being a dad for us and misanthropic kids, he had always been that too. Our gregarious anchor, warm and happy. May was conscientious and a bit of a downer, though I say that as lovingly as I can. Without her, Peter and I would have devolved into sloppy, self-indulgent men long ago. Insufferable and perhaps more free but less happy. It was May that badgered Peter into first talking to Corinne as he pined pitifully across the crowded bar. She was loving in a brutal sort of way, and she wasn't shy about being blonde. I gotta piss. You lousy weirdos keep your eyes in the fire, she said, standing. Maybelline, I'm a married man, Peter answered, full of false indignation. I've seen more women peeing than I could ever need, or want. She chuckled and turned to me, narrowing her eyes, accusatory. Don't shame me, May. You're better than that, I smirked. She seethed. And then we laughed and she disappeared, grumbling theatrically. A moment later, I filled Peter's melodic calm with what seemed like a neurosis. Hey Peter, this is gonna sound crazy, but after we turned in last night... I heard it too, man, he said, turning the sausages. I called the ranger station before you and May woke up. No one's missing, but they said to keep an eye out. He was staring then, no longer smiling, pensive. It made me feel oddly settled. And then I thought, You're gonna be a good dad, Peter. Yep, I know. He sipped at his cup. I've been watching Bluey, this Australian cartoon about dogs. I've been taking notes. He never showed a hint of trepidation about becoming a father. No doubts. He had things figured out. And now I hoped that we could give May some peace of mind when she got back. I was sure that she had heard the screams too. Her face said as much. But when she had returned to camp, she looked frantic. She tore open our bag of food and started rummaging. Where are the marshmallows? A snack attack, I like it. No, Peter, where are they? Did one of you finish them last night? I shrugged and Peter shook his head. May looked pale. What is it? I asked. What's wrong? Well, you have to come see. She grabbed my arm and I followed and stumbled through brush and stopped at a nearby clearing. I saw what she was raving about. Marshmallows scattered across the ground, crawling with ants. Gross, I guessed, but not worth the worry. There was something else, the screams maybe, but something more too. I think they're ours. May whispered. Okay, so we've got a raccoon problem. We'll be more careful. It's not a big... Jack, they're arranged. I mean, am I crazy? I didn't get that at first, but when she said it, I saw it. They were laid out like stick fingers, kind of. Maybe not. 
Hey, if this is about those screams last night, Peter called the ranger station. They said that nobody's gone missing. No one has reported anything. It was probably just some kids messing around. So why are you so? There are three stick figures. Three people like us. And it's not just the screams, okay? Well, maybe it is, but now this. May, it's nothing. They look a little like people, but... I think you're seeing shapes in the clouds. There's probably little raccoon teeth marks on them or something. Look. I grabbed a stick from the ground, skewered one of these swarming white globs and lifted it. And the rest lifted with it. One of the people. The stick figure sagged, the marshmallows settled, and I saw a string running through them. Ruddy red twine. An armature. Jack, what the heck? I dropped it. I don't know. Someone did that and made these. Came into our camp last night and why? What does it mean? I don't know. Nothing. Peter said that hikers come through this area occasionally. Maybe one of them decided to play a prank. I don't know. As unsettled as we might have been, Peter was nonplussed by the news. He said that somebody might have pilfered our camp, that it was odd but not unheard of, and that they were gone now, obnoxious but somebody's harmless fun. After Blair Witch, everybody became an amateur horror set designer. They spooked you, mission accomplished. But if it makes you feel any better, May, the greatest threats to you out here aren't people. They're falls, dehydration, Lyme disease, heck. You're actually a lot more likely to be killed at home than you are out in the woods. May nodded thinly. I made her a stiff coffee and she accepted my offer this time. We ate and planned our day. Enough distraction to catch a laugh or two. And then we packed our bags and doused the fire. May conceded that she might have been overreacting. The stress of moving she had confessed. The uncertainty of a new life in a new place was all beginning to boil over. We did our best to reassure her, said nice things and made promises. By the end of the day, she was smiling and teary and Peter had moved our discussion to a quarry for the day. Peter's uncle had owned the land where we had set up camp, a hundred or so acres of low mountain wilderness with a working tree farm at its eastern edge. Pretty rugged country that Peter had been roaming since he was a kid. And we'd been before to camp but never to a place that he mysteriously called Xanadu. It was a special place, a hot spring, technically sitting on national park land, but close enough to feel like ours. An autumn oasis in the woods, hard to find, not on any maps. He made it sound like a slice of bliss, and May and I were primed to think with anything but misplaced fear. Before long, we were excited, we had a purpose and adventure, and an hour later we found ourselves at the base of a sloping climb. One overgrown switchback slithering upward through skinny pines. We were so enthralled by everything, the energy, the wilds that dripped with austere beauty, that we almost missed him sitting there amongst the shrubs. A boy who blended into the gray and brown still in dressed in a uniform that might have belonged to a boy scout troop. 
something normal enough to forgive the oddity of his presence. He was young, maybe 10 or 12 years old. I have never been great at guessing ages. And he was ratty, dusted in dirt, alone and almost smiling. And Peter became immediately paternal. He bombarded the kid with questions. Was he okay? How did he get there? Did he need help? Food? Water? Where were his parents? The boy was uh, strange, ragged and aloof, answering Peter's questions only exactly as they were asked. He was okay. He walked there. He didn't need help, or food, or water. His father was up in the mountain. His mother was in the ground. And he said it just like that. Mama's in the ground. It was unsettlingly matter-of-fact coming from a child. No sorrow or happy pretense about heaven. Flat. Peter brushed it off and kept interrogating. Do you want to come with us? No. Why'd your old man leave you here? Um, to talk to the park ranger. And the rangers up the mountain. Yes. Maybe it's about the scream. May cut in. Oh, crap, I thought we had gotten past that. And I didn't want to. Yes. The boy lifted a backpack from his feet and clutched it to his chest. So you heard it too. Do you know what happened? May seemed more curious than overwrought. A small improvement. The boy opened his mouth and paused. I have charms. Do you want to buy one? Unexpected. Charms. May screwed up her face, confused. She was certainly not alone in that, but I didn't want more worry. So I tried to steal back some of Peter's morning positivity. Sure, I responded. How much? The boy smiled. Five dollars. I had the cash, so why not? Suddenly, he seemed excited and talkative. The charms were really talismans, he explained. They were magic. He made them to protect himself from bad things. Sometimes they weren't, and now he made them for everyone. Everyone deserved protection. His mama taught him how to make them, but she didn't have one when she... He stopped, snatched away my money, and reached into his bag. Charms, talismans, a rodent skull, a couple of ribs, and a few glittery plastic beads, all joined together with a shabby little McCram lanyard made of ruddy and red twine. Hey kid, I started. I don't mean to. I've got to go, he interrupted. Not supposed to talk to strangers, I forgot. Don't tell my daddy, okay? Peter was frowning, eyeing the kid, concerned. May still looked confused. Yeah, sure thing, I said uneasy. But you're sure that you're alright? His nose had started running. He wiped it with his hand, painting dirt across his face. Yes, I have merit badges, always prepared, always okay. Don't tell though if you see him, I'll get in trouble. He smiled awkwardly, stood and shouldered his backpack, and he started walking away. We let him go, even as a mental argument raged on Peter's face, and I kicked myself for not asking about the marshmallow effigies. If only afterward that I mentioned the color of the twine, the similarity. 
May swallowed whatever nascent misgiving she had, turned to resolve instead. I forget it, weird kid, I don't know. Can we just go to this Xanadu place? Peter nodded grimly. He led the way up the mountain into a pool nestled in a bowl of bald rock and gold-leafed birches. The water steamed ghostly and inviting, and all of the morning seemed soothed away by the warmth of it. We sat in silence for a while, May close to me as Peter reclined opposite of us. It's funny, he said finally. Hmm, what is? I asked. Uh, nothing. Just wonder why you two never, you know. I looked at May who caught my eye and flipped her vision back to Peter. Ah, you're shipping us, she asked, blushing despite her sarcasm. You look good together is all. Oh, Peter's congratulating himself for picking attractive friends, I quipped. Well, I didn't hang out with you two because you're nice. May splashed Peter and he laughed, ducked beneath the water. May shrieked as he got one of her feet and kicked at Peter, chirped for help and laughed. I grabbed her to keep her from going under, felt the pretty warmth of her. Gosh dang it, Peter. When he surfaced, he was laughing more, and then he stopped. Oh, hi. May and I turned around and saw a pair of boots, drab khaki trousers, and a green jacket embroidered with a badge. Sorry, I didn't mean to bother you. His jacket said R. Brooks across the chest. The park ranger that the boy's father was talking with I had guessed. He was youngish and clean-shaven, a pleasant smile playing across his face. Something wrong, officer. Because look, I've been coming to this spring since I was a kid and I've never... Oh, no, you're fine. He stared down at Peter and loomed above us. I'm looking for someone. A boy scout because we saw him not too long ago. A boy scout, maybe. Peter rose from the water, grabbed a towel, waved May and I down as we began to rise with them. I think I can show you where we saw him from the overlook, Peter offered. The ranger's smile never wavered. His expression didn't change. He just said, Okay. A moment later, May leaned toward me and whispered, I didn't hear that guy walk up. Maybe he's a ghost. Pfft, you think they would let him retire at least. Eh, unfinished business, you can't ask for better job security. May chuckled and then after a while said, Hey, what Peter said. He's an idiot, a hopeless romantic. He owns a copy of the notebook in hardback, you know. She grinned. Oh, did he borrow it from you? I would never give my copy away. May was close, very close. Brown eyes and wet hair. He is an idiot. Uh-huh. Whatever I might have wanted in that moment, it didn't happen. Peter came back. May pulled her legs off of mine and gave Peter a don't start kind of look. Peter shrugged. So, I asked him about the screams last night, and he said that it was foxes. Foxes? May asked. Yep. Apparently they scream like women. Google seemed to agree. 
Super weird, I know, but yeah. I watched May's brow on net. Oh, weird. Okay. And the kid? I don't know. The ranger didn't talk to anyone on the way up. No dad. But he is with a search and rescue, apparently. And they don't have a missing kid on their radar. Pretty sure they would. Peter chuckled. Guy told me some crazy stories about the job, though. Peter promised to regale us around the campfire later on. And an hour or two later, we were on our way back to camp, feeling lighter, singing, joking, laughing as the sun sunk low and cast our final mile in long shadows. May was the first to see camp. Oh, what the heck? All of our things, coolers, bags and boxes, pants and plastic cups, everything but the tents were all arranged in a circle around a gray-brown lump on the ground. I shined a flashlight as May reached down for the lump, and then she yelled, Ugh, bugs! It was a dead raccoon, an old, a deflated mass of matted fur, hollow eye sockets, a muzzle clean to the bone. If this was that weird kid, May grumbled. She was livid, seething, tearing around our camp and searching. Then we checked for missing things. Nothing gone as best as we could tell. A bit of strangeness made somehow expected weight against everything else. Once the raccoon was buried and out of sight, May began drinking in earnest. Peter lit up a joint and I cooked hot dogs on skewers as a shared silence began to fall. We fought against the unease and tried to joke about it. But then as night settled, Peter made good on his promise to tell us about the rancher's stories. He was clearly having fun with it, adding little embellishments, pausing dramatically. A doormat at the edge of a cliff with a single pair of empty boots. An abandoned school bus, where every seat was covered in what looked like human bite marks. A missing couple's camera showing their last few days alive. Okay, that one seems tragic, but creepy. May was getting into the stories. It wasn't creepy until Ranger Brooks started noticing something in the photos. Two eyes in the distance, a figure among the trees. There were four days of pictures in that camera, and in almost every one, a mountain lion hiding in the background. They didn't notice. The search and rescue never found the bodies. Yeah, well, screw that, May shouted. Nope, nope, nope. Peter turned in early in the night and told us to look through our photos just in case. He smirked and May threw something. And then we were alone. Drinking. Playing truth or dare and feeling the conspiratorial pull of a possibly bad decision. Jack, it's your turn. Truth. Oh, you wimp. Okay, let's see. Earlier today when Peter said well about us, what was your first thought? I watched her watching me close. Her truth was a dare, wasn't it? I leaned into her and made a possibly bad decision. One that I could blame on the whiskey. One that she had reciprocated. And then for a moment, we weren't friends. We were whispering in my tent, taking off clothes and trying and failing to be as quiet as 
we erased the day with something that felt inevitable. Afterwards, we lay, cramped enough to still feel intimate, a tangle of limbs soft and affectionate. I kissed along her chest and stopped at the locket that I had given her for Christmas years before. Something delicate that looked something brutalistic from a distance. Like her. The sound of our breathing, the wind outside the tent, the crickets, the snap of a twig, an uneasy silence and a dozen little thoughts to fill it. Now the stories were getting to me, I reckoned. And crowding out the notion that I had just gotten with a friend was something less complicated. A touch of fear, growing. But we were alone, safe, and as I reached for the tent zipper, May reached for me and asked what I was doing. Oh, it's nothing. Just paranoid. I just need to. I unzipped the door. Opening the flap, I gasped. May screamed and scrambled for the fabric to cover herself. I backpedaled away from the door. The boy stared. Oh, what the heck? What do you... Get out of our camp! He was inches away from the tent, crouched and leering, unmoving, silent. Kid, get lost! Jesus! His eyes moved from me to May. He inhaled a long breath and spoke. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I heard the zipper of Peter's tent. May was shouting, swearing. I was paralyzed, watching the boy's lips wordlessly mouth. If I should die before I wake, I pray the... He stopped. Eyes went wide and he screamed. Peter came running. The boy was faster as he darted off into the woods. May shook, hugged her arms around me as I tried to grasp for one normal thought. Oh, okay. Peter flashlight in hand, shielding his eyes from two naked friends. Uh, try not to look, but guys, what the heck was that thing? I searched for clothes in the shadows, reliving the moment of the boy's scream. Not scared or angry, alarming, shrill, and a feral shriek. The, the kid, I stammered. He was right outside my tent. That was the kid, the boy scout. Peter barked incredulous. I thought that it was an animal. He, um, he ran away on all fours, Jesus. I was glad that I hadn't seen that, but the image still crept into my mind. The boy ambling away, wild limbs bent in the wrong places. Peter searched the woods attentively as I tried to convince May and myself that the boy was harmless. He was just a kid. Weird, but not threatening. Peter lent me his knife after we had settled down. A security blanket I wondered if I could ever bring myself to actually use. He said that he would call the ranger station again in the morning. May slept with me in my one-person tent. Uncomfortable, lovely, warm whimpering in her sleep as I tried to slow my thoughts. Eventually, I must have slowed them enough to drift off. I awoke in the morning alone in my tent. Peter was talking to someone in an officious tone outside. Well, um, take your time then, I guess. Thanks. A pause. Unbelievable. 
When I joined them, May half smiled at me. Better than avoiding eye contact. Something that I had fretted over on top of everything else. What's going on? I asked groggily. Peter huffed and unscrewed the cap of a fresh bottle of whiskey. Auto Shop wanted 500 extra to come out here on short notice. 500? What the heck is happening to the world? The Auto Shop. May sighed. The truck won't start. Probably that kid. I was wanting to get out of Dodge, but... Yeah, what about the kid? The ranger station. And they didn't pick up, Peter responded, abandoning the pretense of boozy coffee. He pulled straight from the bottle and made beckon for him to share. Anyway, nothing weird this morning apart from the truck. All good, I guess. And Peter, about last night, his skull thawed into a mischievous grin. Last night? Oh, for Pete's sake, May cut in, shaking off the chill of the liquor. He obviously knows that we weren't having a naked hang jack. We screwed. Peter and I. I'm going to choose not to feel weird about it. I'm going to drink. And Jack, we're not going to do it again. Unless we do in which case. You aren't going to let me feel weird about it. Either of you. A modern woman. Peter answered amused. I dig it. But Jack, and I say this as a friend, you get around a ton. And I'm shaming you. Oh, screw off. I laughed. Shame. Shame. I turned to May, feeling more okay. You're not going to defend me. No, I agree with Peter. Shame. It didn't get weird. It got easy. And somehow the day became normal. We played cards. We drank. We made up stories about the boy. Clearly, he had been raised by wolves. Stolen from some Boy Scout troop and left to learn wolf culture and woodland handicrafts. May suggested that the glittery plastic beads on his charm talisman thing were a part of an even greater mystery. You know, Lisa Frank went missing in these woods a while back. No one found her. They assumed it was a photogenic mountain lion. But that mountain lion lawyered up, maintained his innocence, never had enough to charge him. She spoke with absolute conviction. Peter tried to look somber. I smiled. Lisa Frank. The Unicorn Notebook Company. She was more than her products, Jack. May said, deadpan, flirting with condescension. Peter drizzled a bit of bourbon on the ground. Thug heaven is always so greedy. Lisa Frank. Thug heaven. Man, we lost it. We laughed more and more, cackling maniac laughter that felt so easy. May kissed me as Peter left us for a moment, and giddy and effortless, lips like a memory. And then she looked at me as if searching for an exit door in my mind, quizzical and earnest. I gave her my contented vacancy in return. Afterwards, we didn't talk about her leaving, didn't talk about feelings, we reveled made all of our misgivings into something ephemeral and endlessly unimportant. The day dragged comfortably. The branches sagged overhead, drowsy and nearly bare, leaves falling, tickling disjointed seconds away. At one point, Peter had called Corinne. We howled at her, to her, 
a pack of drunken idiots waiting for the normal world outside of our camp to return. And Peter didn't tell her much. She seemed happy. And then dusk fell, and a hundred shadows reached from distant trees. That evening, we tried to make up ghost stories around the campfire, doubling down on our effort to control our smothered unease. The fear of the stories was ours, something narrative and expected, grim and grisly, but still lighter than the unknowable dark mustering beyond the firelight. I got up to pee once, staggered out, clumsy and babbling to myself. I must have put down my cup, though I don't remember. I remember the sloshing jerk of the trees around me. I remember thinking of my two friends. I drank more and started to feel wrong. My body hummed, drooping and sickly receding into the gravity of my chair. Jack, you okay? Uh, no, yeah. I've just got to lie down for a bit. I was in my tent, fumbling with the zipper, cold, shivering and sinking into the ground. I heard laughter, Peter's warm bellow and then nothing, a cold tent painted in silence. The firelight was gone and my sleeping bag was hungry, digesting me as a mountain lion's prod outside, and the tent breathed a languorous rhythm. Jack, is that you? Whispered distant phantom words, a dream, a shriek, a muffled sound, the hush of leaves. Somebody, plea, the groan of heavy, naked limbs, an echoed laugh, a scream, guttural and wet, a quickened pulse, thumping, pounding, the rhythmic slap of flesh, another scream, another, another, the whine of a zipper, nothing, and then everything again and again, until the sounds became meaningless. I woke the next morning to barbaric light and a splitting headache, and silence. I waited, burying my dream from the night before, or at least trying to. It was foxes again, I told myself, drunken screaming fox dreams, that's all. I went to May's tent first and called her name, unzipped her door. Empty. She wasn't there. She had gone for a hike, gone for kindling, gone to breathe the mountain air, the scent of pine and moss. She'd be right back. When Peter didn't answer either, I felt relieved. It meant that they were together. I had been foolish, drunk and anxious, nothing more. I unzipped Peter's tent. I hadn't noticed his boots sitting side by side tucked underneath his rainfly, but I felt the vertigo, an illusory cliff. I had fooled myself into seeing a doormat and I looked no further. Peter. Peter! My voice carried, echoed off the tree trunks and died in a whimper. Peter was there, pale skin, swimming in blood. Too much. His belly was ragged, a dozen clotted punctures, a hundred too many. His eyes were open, staring, as if lost in a thought that I couldn't fathom. The screams had been real. Not foxes, a friend dying badly as I spun drunkenly into sleep. And that meant... May. She wasn't there. 
Hers was the first voice I remembered as the silence in the night became something horrific. Jack, is that you? I felt sick. Where was she? Was she afraid, dead, or worse? I had no way to know. Only a multitude of half-certainties. Vague images of anguish hidden amidst the voyeuristic pines. It took hours to hike to the nearest ranger station. A quiet time to think ruefully and see her face in every distant clearing. A ranger named Jansen told me that they hadn't received a call from Peter. Not after the first night and not after the second. I told her about the kid, about Ranger Brooks and every detail that I could remember. Brooks? There is no Brooks that works in the park. I tried to remember his face, but I couldn't. It blended indistinctly with something plausible but far from firm. Even now, I search my memory for that phase, but nothing. The following day, I was told that the likely motivation for Peter's death was money. His wallet was missing and so was mine. I'll admit it is strange that that's all they took. Jansen's boss said those words so easily. It was Jansen who recognized the pain in my eyes and returned it with sympathy. That's all they took. May was still missing, a hole in me that grew with each passing day. And I was the one who told Corinne about Peter. I told her over the phone and listened to her break after the disbelief bled out of her. She loved Peter and Peter was going to be a good dad, a perfect dad. I wanted to see that so badly. But as Corinne wept and asked her questions, all I could tell her was that, I don't know. Why would they kill him? I, I don't know. Did he make someone mad? I, I don't know. Who did it? I, I, I don't know. Why did they let you go? I... That question bothered me for a long time. Why did they let me go? I wasn't special. I wasn't pure. I was chosen. After describing my recollection of that night to the rangers, they sent me to the hospital for a drug screening. By then, my blood alcohol was zero. I tested positive for cannabis as I knew that I would, but I had also tested positive for ketamine. I had wandered into the woods alone. I must have put down my cup to pee, and then I felt wrong. It meant that somebody was there anxious for me, silent, hiding, waiting, and predatory, and I had felt safe. A month later, Corinne gave birth to a healthy baby girl. A fatherless girl with Peter's easy smile. By then, my persistent calls to the ranger station were met with faltering patience and thin courtesy. They were still looking. May's parents would be their first call, but I would be their second. But I never got that call. It's been 14 months. This Christmas, like my last one, fell hollow without them. I visited Corinne and Vivian a few days ago. I gave Viv a plushie, the dad from Louie. I didn't know that it would make Corinne cry, but Viv chewed on its nose and for a moment, everything felt normal. And then last night, I had a moment of hope. There was a plain envelope in my mailbox with Jack written in big black letters across the front. A part of me saw May's handwriting there. Jack. My stomach bounded. 
I opened it quickly, savagely, and found two things inside. A thumb drive and a locket. The thumb drive was filled with files of videos, and as I played the first, I was transported. Oh, come on, you're gonna love it. It's called Cherokee Stew. Oh, so it's a Cherokee recipe. Uh, it could be. I mean, it's got venison and corn. Maize, I guess. What the heck, Pete? You can't just call something Cherokee stew because it has deer meat and corn in it. Hey, what's wrong with that? It's a good name. And it's delicious. Made Peter and me from a distance. There were dozens of videos like it. The ghostly grayscale of night vision. The clarity of day through a telephotic lens. Two nights of oblivious us in the myopic comfort of our campfire's light. We were safe. We always were wrong. I watched them all one by one. At night as we slept, they would creep out from the woods and sit around the ashes of our fire. They moved our things, drank our water, ate our food and listened to us sleep. They never spoke. The boy and the cameraman. But they worked with chilling, silent purpose. And then I got to the video of that night. May didn't scream at first. She thought they were me and why wouldn't she? They came with duct taped and coarse robe. Left her to wait as they made their way to Peter. I still can't answer Corinne's questions. I don't know why they killed him. I wish that I could unknow how. That video had ended with me still as a corpse, whimpering quietly in some hallucinatory nightmare. I might have screamed if I knew what they had done to me before they came to me. They watched me as her distant muffled screams mingled with their brass. And I don't know why. I don't know where they took her and what they did after her. I see her constantly because I need to hope, but I don't know if she's alive or dead. I know nothing, or I knew nothing. As I waited for the police to come for the thumb drive, as I began writing this, hoping that someone might offer some reason for any of it, as I moronically began to clean or lock it to purge something horrible from something sweet, I looked at that envelope again. In my foolish hope, I had seen May's hand in ambiguity. She knew my address, it made sense. And then the theft of my wallets made sense. They didn't want money. They wanted me. And I don't know why. A big thanks to Ghostbed for sponsoring this week's episode. Can't get to sleep. Maybe it's nightmares or maybe it's just an uncomfortable mattress. With Ghostbed, you can finally get the scary good sleep that you deserve. For more than two decades, Ghostbed has been making mattresses, pillows, and other sleep products designed for maximum comfort and support. Tired of waking up in a cold sweat? Every Ghostbed mattress features signature cooling materials, including their patented Ghost Ice technology, so you can fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. Get fast and free shipping with most orders shipping within 24 hours. Plus, you'll get a 101-night sleep trial with free returns if you're not 100% comfortable on your new mattress.
For a limited time, our listeners can get 30% off Ghostbed mattresses plus two free pillows. Use promo code MrCreeps at ghostbed.com slash creepscast to take advantage of the offer. That's ghostbed.com slash creepscast with promo code MrCreeps. I'm a guard in a hidden prison located in the Arctic. The inmates are normal. Written by Colt Leisure I was a correctional officer at a supermax prison. It was near Florence, Colorado. I stayed as an employee there for a half a decade. I saw almost everything that you can imagine. Escape attempts, stabbings, and riots. Also sharp weaponry that was hidden in places that you would rather not visualize. These are only some of the more unpleasant occurrences that I have dealt with in the past. I am currently writing this on encrypted Wi-Fi from an undisclosed but safe location. I have had a change of careers following the events of the tale that I am about to share with you now. I hope that people thinking about becoming prison guards read my story and reconsider any future life choices that they will look back on as a mistake. The warden called me into his office on a Monday. During the entire walk there down the hallways, I thought of the trouble that I could be in. Shut the door, he said as he looked up at me from his desk after I had entered. Those words sealed it to my mind. How much hot water I was in for some sort of infraction that I was not aware of yet. Bureaucratic, micromanaging, and constant procedural changes were nothing new to me. I still hated petty political grievances. I nodded and sealed the entranceway. He demanded I take a seat, and I did. You're the best officer here, he said. I waited for the butt. I anticipated news of termination. I saw a force transfer to some mundane position. Filing paperwork headed my way. I want to give you an opportunity, he said. You'll make 600000 in one year. Your benefits will remain unchanged. You will have less oversight than what is present for you now. You would be in a leadership position, albeit an isolated one. That sounds ideal. I said as my mind swam in the possibilities of how much profit he had offered. There are only two things that we ask of you. One is that you cannot tell anybody about your new position. Two is that you locate somewhere else. There's a prison in the Arctic, and that is where your life will be for the next 365 days. The confusion must have been readable on my face. If your wife asks you, tell her that you're going to a federal academy. There is no cell service or Wi-Fi there. Any contact you make with her must be through snail mail. We will handle the addresses given. If you decline this offer, then this conversation never happened. Do you understand? I contemplated the pros and cons. Before I became law enforcement, I was a bodyguard. I was gone from the house for extended periods. Even though it would be time with the wife lost, the fortune would help both of us. I agreed. 
In the prison facility was a large compound, not much bigger than the place that I patrolled before her. A few things jumped out at me when I first laid eyes on the populace there. They all had wounds on their faces, and they spoke a strange, guttural language that I was unfamiliar with. Why do they talk in such a bizarre tongue? I asked myself as I would walk down the blocks. The new warden that I worked under had the last name of Buckley. He had noticeable scar tissue beneath his eyes. His attitude towards me at the beginning was hardly welcoming. If anything, he acted as though I was a burden. He seemed to resent me due to the mere possibility of having to train me on things. One evening, Buckley ordered me to do a cell extraction. Christopher Aluko was the name of the inmate that we had to deal with. On the walk there, I asked my boss what Aluko had done to end up here. I'm not allowed to tell you what these scumbags have accomplished to wind up here, Buckley said. He had started his career in crime by cannibalizing his sister. Though tonight, our only goal is to get him moved to the hole. He's proven himself to be way too dangerous to share a space with anyone. The doors of each cell were closer to that of an insane asylum than a prison. They were complete barriers that you could not see through. It was me and three other guards who were about to deal with this high-profile detainee. The supervisor was present, doing the thing that bosses generally do. That is to say that he remained on standby and didn't get his hands dirty. Upon walking in, the first thing that I saw was Aluko sitting upright on his cot. I noticed that he was huge, at least 6 foot 8 and 320 pounds of pure muscle. His skin cracked all over. His face had the normal scarring that I associated with most people in this place. I'm going to need you to stand up and put your hands behind your back, I said. I kept my hand near the holster where the pepper spray was. Show me respect and I'll show you the same, I continued. You won't have handcuffs on you for long if you cooperate. You are not better than me, Aluko said. His voice had a baritone quality, which I had expected from a man of his size. What I did not was how weird it sounded. It was as though four or five people were chanting the words in unison. All right, I said. Let's get you moved to where you need to go. The faster we do this, the better off we'll be. You shouted someone in broad daylight when you were in a gang years ago, Aluko said. It took ten years for the paranoia to go away. The fear of the cops coming to arrest you for a potential murder before you became a low-grade one yourself. To this day, you don't know if any innocent civilians got caught in the crossfire. We had to restrain his huge arms and place the metal bracelets on his wrists. He laughed all the while. As we brought him to solitary, I thought of his words and how much they had unsettled me. They were true, and that story from my past was one that I had not told anybody. Near the end of the shift, Buckley went into one of these sniper towers and smoked a cigarette. Since my duties for the day were complete, I took the spiral staircase to the level that he stood on. 
When I saw him, I was only a few mere inches away from where he puffed. He didn't seem to mind or even care about the footsteps behind him. He focused on the distant and alluring winter sun. The caged animal back there said something which he shouldn't have, I said. Uh, part of the job is having thick skin, he said as he flicked his cigarette over the edge into the snow. He turned around to face me. It's not about that, I said. Oh, did he hurt your poor little feelings? He had an insight into my past that no one has. I said as a bitter taste filled my mouth. Well, that's unfortunate. It means you lied to the oral board when you got into the position that you're in now. You shouldn't lie to your employers. I need to know what kind of prison this is. I said as I felt blood rush to my head. Why does everybody have open sores all over their body and face? Are they exposed to some kind of virus? And if so, are we susceptible? Either that or they're always high on something. That would explain why they're always speaking gibberish. And how in the heck do they know things that I haven't even told the closest people in my life? Uh, better to do the job assigned. Don't worry about things above your pay grade. Buckley pulled out another pack of cigarettes and lit one. I hope we're not exposed to dangers that we weren't warned about. I'll have to find a way to get the word out. If you break your non-disclosure agreement, it would be far worse than a termination. Your wife back home, the one with the dark curly hair and the nice curves. I would hate to see the impact of your decisions on her. That was when I grabbed him by the lapels and shoved him to the ground. I considered throwing elbows. The idea of him making him taste his own blood was satisfying. I didn't want to be incarcerated in this den of misery though, out of all places. Buckley started laughing. What he did next took me by complete surprise. He patted me on the back with his free hand, instead of trying to defend himself or resist. You've proven your point, he said as he pushed on my chest. Now get off me. I don't want to give the signal to one of my buddies in the next tower. He has a modded Remington 700 pointed at you. I released him. After he stood and brushed some frost off, he made eye contact with me. I respect you for your bravery. Most people wouldn't be willing to do that to me, especially someone beneath me in rank. I'll tell you what, I'll shed a little bit of light on what kind of place this is for you, and if I ever find out that you told anyone, you'll wish that you would have died at birth. I felt the adrenaline start to wear off. As my energy lowered, I nodded, thereby giving tactic agreement to his new offer. I looked to my left and saw the sniper that he was referring to. It occurred to me that if he had wanted to take action against me, he could have had me executed right then and there. Buckley waved at me to follow him as we made our way down the steps. He escorted me through the yard, ice encased at the weight sets and pull-up bars. We followed the chain link fence to another facility that he had coded key access. After we put in the correct digits, he swung the door open. We made our way down a hallway that didn't seem modern. There were lit torches on the walls. The flooring was pallid cobblestone. 
he brought me into another room which was the size of an auditorium. A man stood up and he wore all black clothing with a white collar, and it took me a while to recognize him as a priest. I saw rows of long tables, one fit for a king in an ancient era, crucifixes, rosaries, chalices of water, and stacks of dusty books lined every corner. I skimmed to some of the titles and saw that a few were in a different language. Father Lamora, Buckley said as he stared at the man of the cloth. What are you doing down here? The priest pointed to his left. When I shifted my eyes in that direction, I did not immediately notice the presence of a fourth person in the room. This one was one of the inmates tied down in a slab. As soon as we had focused our collective attention on him, the man came to life. He started struggling against his restraints. A red-tinged substance poured from his mouth like foam from a rabid dog. I have almost driven the evil entity out, the priest said. Buckley turned to me. What is going on here? I asked. I had the irresistible urge to run screaming in the other direction. I knew that I could not take my chances out in the harshest cold, but a part of me was willing to at least try. This prison's budget comes from the Vatican. We only take inmates possessed by something greater than a general sadism or psychopathy. In the official government paperwork, they call this place the House of the Demonium. If you want to atone for the sins that I know you're guilty of, now would be an excellent time. Help us read the incantation needed to cleanse this heathen. Our possessed inmates were flown in from around the world. The evening the young girl came to our gates via the bus was an unusual occurrence. The transporting officers rolled her towards me on a gurney. She fought against her restraints. She screamed in the dense and layered voice that I had become used to at that point. She wore a tattered and old beige colored dress. Bloodstains and marked her clothing. I made a mental note to try and get her some blankets once she was in her new home. Her name was Anna. There were a few things that made her different from the others. For starters, her eyes were milky. She retained the same faraway gaze that they all had. But it was as though her pupils indicated a narcotic use. Her eyes never got any clearer during the entirety of my time monitoring her. There was one singular trait that made her stand out from the others. She often quieted down in her yelling once she was in the presence of the staff. The inmates usually never cared who they were in front of, unless it was to unearth our secrets or to shame us. She minded her manners. This was as alarming as much as it was respectful. Once I had placed her in the cell, I knew that I had to bind her to the bed after removing her from the gurney. As soon as I unbuckled one of the straps on her wrist, she reached up and tried to claw at my face. I ducked her strike. I reached towards my belt for a canister. If this were a normal prison, I would have been filled with mace. Mine brimmed with holy water instead. I sprayed at her. Smoke emanated from her skin and she let loose a cry of anguish. 
I undid the rest of her straps and moved her to the bed. I shut the door and went to lodge. The lodging for the employees was three separate rows of cabins. The most luxurious ones belonged to leadership. The second most comfortable apartments were the priests. The third, and needless to say the most decrepit, provided shelter for the officers. Even though my space was hardly glamorous, it became my sanctuary. I was able to work out, read paperback books, and journal. These activities helped maintain my mental sanity. I stared at the ceiling and thought how unsettled I was about the girl. Every inmate had a glitter of humanity, and something about her made me want to investigate her past. Word spread amongst the employees how there was only one computer in the entire facility. It contained the reports database. It was in our warden's office. The rumor also circulated that he had access to the inmates' rap sheets. Buckley had verified this for me in one of our prior conversations, though it was an accident. I waited until after hours to enter Buckley's space. I managed to bribe one of the janitors with extra snacks. Never underestimate the power of common items in the penitentiary. Buckley had left his computer on without signing out. Navigating the digital database of various inmates' profiles was tricky. While I wanted to look up different names, I decided to focus on the young girl. I searched for every Anna until I found the one that I was looking for. A few things stood out to me about her right away. The main body of text on her infractions had many redactions. I printed it out and I grabbed the papers. I closed the door behind me and headed down the hallway back to my lodging. I read the document on my walk. Even though she was only 20 years old, she was also a nuisance to society. She had burnt down a halfway house that she was staying at. She was there for many DUIs. Several judges had given her breaks, so they decided to put her in mental health facilities instead of jail. She kept attacking the staff there. The worst of these was when she stabbed a nurse and the jugular. The RN survived but had to talk through a voice box for the rest of her life. I was right outside my door when I heard a familiar voice. You're out late, Officer Nuoso said. I turned around and saw his large frame. In the two months that I had been there, I got to know the man well. He had come here from the Arizona State Prison Complex, and we had swapped some other stories. His tales of the encounters that he had with death row prisoners had intrigued me. Well, what do you have there? Nuoso asked. A guidebook on how to perform a successful exorcism. I had lied. I didn't think you liked working off-duty. Uh, we do what we have to. How did you get it? They won't let us use the internet here. I found it under the seat of the mobile unit, I said. I didn't feel good about falsifying information to appear that I had respect for. Oh, I see. I came here to ask if you have any extra coffee. I'm out and I don't want to go all the way down to my locker to get some in the morning if I can help it. Yeah, no problem. I said as I unlocked the door and invited him in. I stuffed the papers under my mattress so 
that he wouldn't be able to read them. I reached into my backpack and pulled out some instant packets. I gave them to him and saw that he had stared at my collection of books. At the far end was a Bible. His eyes locked on it. He grabbed the coffee packs and he looked at me. Do you believe what they're telling us? He asked. What do you mean? About God and the devil. All these biblical villains taking control of all the people here. It seems far-fetched to me. There has to be something more going on. What if this is an asylum for those with undiagnosed mental illness? The kind researchers aren't advanced enough to understand yet. Have you ever thought of that? I sat down. I don't think science has the answer, I said. The ones in here are gifted with preternatural abilities. It's like they can read our minds or at least our past, no matter how secretive we are. I never felt as though I have less power than I do since I came here. All I know is that I can't pretend to understand everything, whether it's celestial or empirical. I cannot feign understanding of the evil within these walls. To pretend otherwise is arrogance. Buckley Nuoso, a priest, and I walked together to Anna's cell. We could hear her screaming from within a 300-foot distance. The other lamentations of the prisoners became drowned out by her wailing. We entered her cell. Words written in blood around the wall. They were Latin. She stared at us with a smile. Her face seemed puffier than usual, which emphasized the wounds on her face. The priest pulled out a rusted black crucifix. He raised it in her direction as he approached her. Her screams grew louder with each advancing stop. He pulled out a small pocket Bible and read a prayer from it. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, thrust into Hades, Satan and all evil spirits who wander through the world for the ruin of souls. Amen. Her eyes became less opaque. I was able to make out their green color for the first time. She gazed at me and spoke intelligible words for the first time since her forced visitation. Your mother died an early death because she found out you joined a gang. Anna said with a mocking laugh. I turned around to see if anybody was staring at me with judgment. The expressions were neutral until they turned into worry. Everybody in the room knew they would have to wait their turn for public humiliation. You accepted a bribe to stay silent after an inmate stabbed another one to death. She said at an old cell. Nuoso muttered something under his breath. He stated the inmate was a horrible person who mistreated children. He commented on how the earth was lighter without the presence of such a person weighing it down. You, Anna said as she stared at Buckley. You are the worst out of everyone. Your wife dies by drowning and you received her upper life insurance policy. Wait until they look deeper into that. What I saw next horrified me. Buckley screamed out the word, no, as he lunged at her. His hands wrapped around her throat before one of her legs broke free, 
Furman's binding and kicked him in the ribs. He must have forgotten to wear his vest that day because he folded in and landed on the ground. The priest placed the cross on her forehead and left a permanent mark there. She passed out. Her exhalation before she lost consciousness made her body deflate into unnatural thinness. Buckley called me into his office the next day. He asked me to take a seat with a menacing tone. He slammed the door and sat behind his desk. Do you even want to work here anymore? I know this employment opportunity is a very unique one, but it's not for everyone. You knew when you became a corrections officer that this type of job requires more mental fortitude than the most professions. This isn't any different because we're operating in uncharted territory. Have I done something wrong? I asked. You entered my office after hours. He said as he banged his fist on the table. I don't know what your motivation was. Are you starting to believe what some of these inmates are saying about me? They don't see our sins with full impunity. They know enough about our interior lives and what bothers us enough to get under our skin. It is us versus them. Once you side with the enemy, then you're no good to the team here, let alone me. If you're running some kind of vigilante investigation against me, two can play at that. Believe me when I say you don't want to be on my bad side. If you're going to fire me, I said, I won't make excuses. You should know that I wasn't trying to get you in trouble or dig up any dirt. I wanted to look up any and all information that I could on Anna. She seemed to be more in control of what possessed her than the others. I wanted to figure out what made her so unique in that regard. I figured that if I ever wound up possessed, I could weaponize whatever she used. You're like a child, he said as he stood and paced back and forth. Do yourself a favor and stay within your pay grade. The Vatican has hired scientists to study behavior during possessions. In the old days, they would have dismissed it as different demons. You don't have a degree in microbiology any more than I do. We are muscle hired to make sure the demonologists are safe when they do their job. So you do yours. Yes, sir. I felt as though I had backed down and given him some sort of sovereignty over me. I also knew that if I lied or resisted, it would only lead to a loss of money for my family and me. Count yourself lucky, he said, as he sat back down and picked up a pen. I'm not reporting your mistake to any of my superiors. Do not make me regret giving you this break. Now get out of here before I change my mind. I made my way to the threshold. I faced him as I began to turn the knob. One question, I said. Most of the time inmates come shipped here in groups. Anna arrived alone. Why was she given special treatment during her transport? Is she a celebrity? The daughter of a famous politician? It's within my rights to know as somebody who has to check up on her. Anna is my daughter. Buckley said as he scribbled on a pad in motion for me to leave. As time went on, I saw humanity behind the violent demeanor of many inmates. A common fear of correctional officers is susceptibility to manipulation by the incarcerated. I tried not to become a victim of my empathy. 
One of the prisoners named Aluko managed to escape. I collected information on how he did it. Rumors abounded that he had turned a toothbrush into a pick. He allegedly had weakened the concrete around his barred window. Another tale given was how he overpowered one of the correctional officers. The officer was too embarrassed to admit it, so they tried to cover it up. Aluko was a massive man. There was no shame in losing an unarmed combat match with him. The lack of weapons used left me baffled. The strangest part of the story was not how he escaped. It became obvious the inmates had some sort of intelligence. They were not as impulsive as we had judged them to be. They had the basic want of freedom or the cruel entities that controlled them did. The most unsettling part of Aluko's fleeing was not how he had managed to scale the barbed wire, nor was it his willingness to traverse the tundra. What perplexed me the most was how his life had ended when he was left than half a mile away from the prison. It was not the elements that took him. Something had torn him apart. The theory of it having been a polar bear spread. They wanted a meal to go with their coke. One of the officers joked in the briefing room, I didn't find the lame quip funny, and neither did the warden. Our general lack of civility was not uncommon, but some jokes were intolerable. While many of us wrote it off as a polar bear attack, there was one aspect of the butchery not in alignment with that. Now Luko's eyes are missing from his skull, a member of the search team said. Something carved an upside-down cross into its chest, or what was left of it. Medics came back and told us everything that they had seen. The brass took over the investigation shortly afterward. I asked one of the priests what could have ended his life. What kind of wraith-like being could perform such a precise and terrifying mutilation? I had asked. This has the makings of an attack by... Azazel, the priest said. That particular type of demon wanders the wilderness. It can take many forms. Be on the lookout for anything resembling a goat. If you see horns when you're doing an outside perimeter jack, be sure to recite a prayer and use this. He handed me a crucifix. My stubborn agnosticism did not want to accept it as a believable weapon. I relented because he was so polite. Buckley called us into his office, and when we got there, he didn't slam the door as I expected him to. Corrections officer Nwusu and I gazed at each other with alarm as Buckley waved at us to follow him. He took us to an elevator in one of the back chambers that I had earlier dismissed as a room for the cleaning crew. An elevator was there. He opened it, had a step inside, and let us down to the basement. The subterranean cellar was completely barren except for two items. One was a stained glass window that depicted the Virgin Mary coated in ice. The second was an electric chair. I didn't know the prison had such a chamber. Everything about the seat looked old. It seemed to belong to a medieval era, rather than having come from decades ago. The arms of the chair had the faces of gargoyles at the ends of them. I've been talking to officers about this, he said. 
As a team, everybody is culpable except for me. The procedures we maintain of checking on the subjects every hour are important. It wasn't written as a flexible guideline. It exists for a reason. For an inmate to manage a successful escape attempt does not look good on us or the higher-ups in Rome. I don't know if you were lazy or scared to do your jobs, but either way, you need to toughen up and develop a work ethic. Otherwise, it's going to get ugly fast. I had the policy changed. Regardless of how understaffed we may be, you are not going to do six routine checks on the inmates every hour. If I hear a single complaint coming from your lips, you will regret it beyond measure. Are we clear? After a silence ensued, Buckley called us incompetent once more and dismissed us. Nuusu took the elevator up. I turned around and spoke to Buckley. Warden, I have a question. I did not permit you to ask one. I suppose after the beatdown I gave you, I'll allow it out of pity. Do any of the inmates have the demons driven out of them? And if so, where do they go afterward? Do they go back to the prison they came from? Are they granted immunity and allowed to go home? Do the exorcisms make them purer than what they were before? You are nothing more than pond scum with a badge. Buckley said with a sneer. Don't ask questions if your wage it doesn't merit it. How many times do I have to tell you? I was wondering because I haven't seen Anna in a while. Watch what you say and get out of my face. You are a hair breadth away from me documenting your insubordination. Although I love pushing his buttons, I didn't want the negative consequences. I left the room. I did not yearn to be the newest execution there. I went up into one of the towers and I looked out at the expansive plains of frost and woodland. Buckley's threats and bullying were starting to get to me more than usual. Verbal abuse in my industry was not uncommon, but something about his irate tone under these conditions it made it sting much worse. It filled me with a certain anger that I didn't know how to resolve. I figured getting some fresh air and doing a bit of investigating would help me stay preoccupied. I needed to clear my mind. Aluko's escape gave a negative impression of my work performance. I still refused to believe his death was some sort of natural phenomenon. I brought a sniper rifle with me, and I looked through the scope. The bullets had a cross carved into each one of them. I tried to trace the exact path that Aluko took when he made his final attempt at getting back into society. I carried a night vision device to help me see through the darkness. A half hour later, I saw movement. It was subtle at first. Snow fell from tree branches. My heart raced as I saw a figure wandering through a thick cluster of pines. It was a woman in a nightgown as white as the hills around her. Backward arching horns protruded from her forehead. The way she moved was peculiar. Her steps didn't seem to telegraph any sort of movement, as though she was floating. There were no indentations in the snow behind her. Her head tilted to the side. The last frozen feeling she wore on her face was one of pain. She seemed to suffer a sort of paralytic neck injury. A black-tailed deer was only 20 feet from her. She sneaked behind it, predatory. 
What I saw next disturbed me. The deer's torso opened. A crimson spurt littered the snow with puddles of red fluid. The ethereal woman reached on and tried to grab some of the eviscerated body parts. Her hands sunk through the chunks of meat. She wailed at the moment. I squeezed the trigger. It connected. Her chest tore, two sheets splitting open. Her scream became even more voluminous. She exploded like an effigy, incandescent in the Arctic. She evaporated into ashes. The flames went away and so did the spirit. A pile of blackened and smoldering embers got carried away by the wind. They decorated the trees as though it was a macabre Christmas stage setup. The next night, I visited Nwusu in his room. His place was a mess. He was usually clean and organized. His few paperback books, sci-fi military adventures were strewn about on the floor. I noticed that he also had half a bottle of scotch in his nightstand, which was a definite violation. We weren't allowed to drink. The threat of an emergency forced us to maintain sobriety, but still I wasn't going to snitch on him. I think I killed a demon, I said as I took a seat across from him. I searched high and low for the body and couldn't find it. One of the preachers told me that it was a particular type of evil called Azazel. I looked at Nuoso and saw that his eyes seemed to stare out for a thousand yards towards the ceiling. What's wrong, man? I asked. I found the death ledger, he said. I don't understand. Whoever flipped the switch on the electric chair we saw yesterday kept a logbook. Everybody whose life he ended. There had been exactly 106 people killed in that chair. Sure, some of them were repugnant before their possession. Others got locked up for a seatbelt violation. There's no consistency in regards to why they were worthy of capital punishment. Nuosu pulled out a manila volume, and he tossed it my way. I flipped through it and saw many names, some striking me as familiar. Do you have any suspicion they were killing people under our noses? No, I said. I searched the papers for dates. To see how recent or old the incidents of annihilation were. All were within the last year. There was a weird energy in the electric chair room, Nuusu said. What you banished out in the woods may have been the spirit of an already possessed yet dead person. It's possible that when they're killed, their demonic selves stay on this plane. They could choose to haunt us. Could be every ghost story written since the beginning of time is the darker half of a human lingering. I must admit, I don't know who would want to stay in a place like this after all though. I nodded. I also began to wonder if it was correct or if he was losing his sanity. I helped Aluko escape, Nuusu said as he turned to face me. The conditions of this place appall me. I want to assist many more. I have never seen a prisoner transported via helicopter. My sixth month of working at the facility had changed that. It landed on a helipad made of yellow and blue paint. The pilot and guard took the detainee out of the chopper. They were both army personnel. The stripes of the uniforms indicated that they were not low level within the military. 
As I watched this from one of the towers, I couldn't help but wonder who the new inmate was. The person tried to give the captors a struggle. Both were strong and didn't seem very worried. They kept the person under control. I observed these subjects' clothing during the escort down to the top floor of the cells. A black burlap sack was over their head. A large blanket covered them. It was impossible for me to even gauge the basic silhouette of the individual. I had seen many kinds of transport, but none so high profile. It made me contemplate it if they were an insurgent from some faraway land. I pondered if they were a kingpin of some nefarious domestic terror group. I asked one of the other officers if they knew anything about the person. They told me the subject was in the hole, the most isolated cell in the grounds. Orders were not to take the burlap sack off of the person's head. This perturbed me a great deal. I asked if we had any information on the person. I already knew that the answer would be vague if there would be any sort of concrete backstory at all. I met the warden in one of the break rooms as he was eating steak. It was better than the freeze-dried and prepackaged artificial slob they gave to those of us lower in rank. I became jealous in a matter of seconds. You told us to watch the prisoners more, I said as I folded my arms, who was looking out after the one in solitary. What makes them get room floors above the rest of the general population? Is this person the country's most prolific serial killer or something? What would merit such severe protections? I don't create the law here, he said with a mouthful. Believe it or not, I'm kept in the dark about a lot of the things as well. Don't assume because I'm not a grunt that I have all the details you so crave. Do me a favor when you get out of here next month. Take it up with the big guys in Italy, especially the one with the funny hat. I'm sure they would love to hear your thoughts. While you're there, tell them that I deserve a promotion. That same night, I went up to the top level and walked past the door that led to the solitary cell. Though I couldn't see inside because it was a wall of pure concrete, I did hear the wails of the prisoner. They sounded familiar. I was doing my routine checks and I passed one of the cells which had belonged to an inmate named Andre. He sat straight up and stared at me. I could tell something was different about him. He wasn't writhing on his cot, nor was he struggling with the usual muscle contractions. He walked up to me. The barrier between us didn't give me a perfect feeling of protection. I am cured, he said. The usual milky pupils most of the inmates had had been things that he was now devoid of. You are doing much better, I said. I've never seen anybody look as clear-headed as you do now. Not around here anyways. How are you feeling? Paranoid. Do you know what they do to people like me? After they've driven the evil out of us, they send us to a megachurch in the Rockies. The church has its propaganda machine. They turn us into pamphlet writers or social media manipulators. Missionaries for their so-called god. I would rather have Beelzebub as my host than be a door-to-door Bible salesman. Who told you that? Your boss, Buckley. I wouldn't worry about that. He tends to say a lot of mean things to get a rise out of people. You don't understand. The transporting officers have told the other inmates the same thing. 
They can't all be out on one big lie like that. No offense, but none of you are that organized. I won't argue with you there. They say that once we're sent to their cult-like compound, we must comply. If we refuse to work for the church, they put the demons back inside of us. They know how to weaponize those demons. It's not all about exercising them anymore if it ever was. It's about using them to control us. Andre's hand slipped through the metal food flap. He held a shank. The tip of the blade pierced through the midsection of my vest. I grabbed his wrist and wrestled the knife away from him until it clattered on the floor. I got a hold of the webbing of his hand and broke a few of his fingers, and I yelled for backup. Another officer came by and sprayed holy water into the slot. When it did nothing, we switched over to pepper spray and sent him to the ground. Inmates using dirty tricks and distractions to try and get one over on me was nothing new. That particular incident made me very spiteful and paranoid though. When I controlled the cells the next day, Andre was nowhere to be found. I found that they had shipped him somewhere else. I wondered if it was to the nightmare place of forced worship that he had described. Nubusu had let me a copy of Milton's Paradise Lost. I felt obligated to give it back to him. After I had finished the last page, I went outside and knocked on Nuusu's door. There was no answer. I went back into my room and I grabbed a flashlight. I walked up to the door again and banged on the barrier with the metal device. Even with the reverberation, Nuusu still did not call out or come to the door. I had seen him fall into unhealthy habits which were worse for wear. His motivation to help people flee had gotten the best of him. His drinking had spiraled out of control due to the stress level that he was under. I kicked the door down. I couldn't tolerate the thought of letting him die by choking on his vomit after an intense bender. The room was empty and clean. None of his stuff was there. I walked into Buckley's office the next day. One of the inmates smuggled a pistol in, I said. Impossible, Buckley said as his eyes widened. I need your help in assessing the cell, sir. There might be some ballistics evidence. You believe that he used a gun? Yes, I said. I escorted Buckley to the chamber. It was a mess and items were strewn about everywhere. Where's the gun? I braced my knuckles with a small baton and punched Buckley in the temple. He fell. I took his service weapon and master keys. I walked out of the hallway and shut the door immediately. I waited for him to recover and come to, and when he did he shook his head like he was waking up from a deep sleep, and he gazed at me with pure hatred. What do you think you're doing, Lieutenant? Buckley said as he touched the side of his head for blood. I want you to tell me what happened to my best friend. No lies this time. Where did Nuuso go? You do too much. Nothing worse than someone a kid picked on in high school who gets into this profession. They always overcompensate. Sometimes it's better to not be proactive. Wait till you get out of the field. You'll learn that lesson in an even harder way if you live that long. I'll tell the boys you gave a direct order to leave this level alone. You'll be here until you starve and dehydrate. I don't want to be cruel, but you need to start answering my questions or we're going to have problems. 
Who's the prisoner who came in cloak the other day? Is it Nuuso? Is he possessed? Buckley glared at me and didn't answer. I stared down at the master keys. Last chance to tell me, I continued. I'm going to do my investigation if you don't help me. Screw off. There's something I will say though. Ever since Anna came here, they've changed some procedures. One on how those related to the officers get booked in here. Don't hate me, I don't make the rules. I wanted to ask him to elaborate, but I was getting angrier with him by the second. I left him there and went to solitary confinement. I went to the most isolated holding chamber on the property. When I opened the door, I found a yellow hallway that ended in darkness. I turned down my torch and walked down the vestibule with a hand on my service weapon. I found the prisoner in the corner, their hands tied to the bed, the burlap sack still over their face. I ripped it off. My wife stared back at me. Her face had cracked skin and was paler than I could ever remember. I stumbled backward at the sight of her. No, I said through gritted teeth. As the dawn of my new reality had cascaded over me, I punched the wall. I broke a few knuckles too. I knew what I had to do. I undid the restraints of the bedding and zip-tied her wrists together. I did not want the presence which controlled her to fight me. You never told me you were in a gang that used to rob innocent people, she said as I led her down the hallway. Her voice was not my wife, but sounded the way an actress might on scrambled television. I brought her to the first level. I walked her past prison bar doors after I used the master keys to gain access to them. It was snowing when we went outside. Where are you going? I turned around and saw an officer that I had met many times. Michael Patterson had the face of a bulldog. He never allowed anyone to think that he was anything but a consummate professional. Humor was something that he was incapable of. The most powerful priest is out on sick leave, I said. He's possessed himself. I have direct orders to take her to the city. I'm going to drive her to one of the churches there. Did Buckley give you any paperwork authorizing this? It's in the prisoner transport vehicle over there. I said pointing at the SUV 300 feet away. Let me get her situated for the drive and I'll be right back with it. Patterson nodded and gave a tacit approval. Once we were in the car, I had 60 miles per hour and drove far away from that wretched place. It took two weeks to get back to our home state. I returned to my house in the middle of the night so the neighbors wouldn't see my wife in the state that she was in. The next morning, I restrained her to her bed. I went to the local church and managed to convince a priest to help me. I had to persuade Father Park that I was not a delusional person. When he arrived in our bedroom, he knew the case was legitimate. Park performed a lengthy seven-hour exorcism. I walked him to the door. My wife had already become lucid again. She didn't have any memories of what led her to being in my workplace. I have tried to pray and purify this house, Park said as I opened the front door. If I were you, I would consider moving. As the priest walked up to his car, I got his attention again by calling out his name. Father, I said, I've been meaning to ask, how do we protect ourselves from possession so I can ensure that this never happens again? 
and demons are like falsehoods, Park said. No matter how intelligent you may be, you could fall victim to believing something not based on facts. We have to guard ourselves against lies and deception. In the same way, we have to always be at the ready when our senses tell us that something evil is afoot. I closed the door and went upstairs and I embraced my wife. How did the assignment go? She asked. None changing industries. My ship has been stuck in the Arctic for weeks. Something inhuman is sneaking on board. Written by Christian Wallace. You have to admit, Dan said as the drone hovered over our deck and lowered its box full of supplies with surprising care. There's something kind of funny about them. Yup, I said with very little enthusiasm. Normally we can't get corporate to buy us coffee, he said. But now we've got a Congo line of flying Roombas bringing us our food. I feel like royalty. I replied in a flat monotone, barely listening to my own words. Oh, come on, Dan cried. I know this sucks, but it'll be okay. We've got supplies. There's a rig just 10 miles away. We can walk to them if we need to. This isn't the 1800s. We're not going to go mad from lead poisoning in our PJs. We just need to hold out. I don't know if he meant it, but Dan's choice of words had a sobering effect on me as I stood beside him on deck. Hold out. I wonder if he realized how tough the next few months would actually be. I was about to say something when I was distracted by the drone. Quietly, it lifted itself from the deck, wobbled gently in the arctic wind, and then flew off at a deceptively high speed. It was the last one that corporate would send for at least a month, and before it had even left my sight, I found myself missing the quiet reminder of civilization. It's just a bit of bad luck, I said. First the engines, and then Gabe. Yeah, you could say that again, Dan replied. Besides, you know that Gabe would have found this whole situation hilarious. He really left us up the creek and without a paddle. Wherever he is, he's laughing his butt off. I knew at some point that I would have to come to terms with the loss of our chief engineer. But for now, I was still cursing his stubbornness. If he had just let one of the other mechanics take care of the engine alert instead of telling them to go back to sleep when he had sorted it, the ship would have never gotten stuck. It wasn't like he had planned on having a heart attack halfway down to the engine, leaving things to go from bad to worse as the ship froze in place. That was just plain unlucky, but it was bad luck that would cost us four months of waiting around for spring. Any news of the others? Dan asked. I walked over to the railing and stared down at the jagged shoreline around our hull. Blocks the size of small trucks lay angled haphazardly against it, their sharp edges threatening all kinds of damage. It was going to be a heck of a job of making sure everything down there stayed intact over the next few months. Our ship was big, but the weather was bigger. They're facing a tough fight to the rig, given the weather, I said, but nothing that they can't handle. From there, it'll either be a chopper or sled dogs, 
depending on how generous corporate is feeling. Neither way, they'll be home for Christmas. Us, on the other hand. There was a moment of silence. The first that we had in days since the evacuation got underway. Now, with the last of the drones gone, and our crew having disappeared over the horizon, there was no ignoring the full weight of our isolation. Any radio contact off them? Dan asked. I'm sure they're fine. It's only been about six hours since they had left, I said. But if you're worried, why don't you try and raise them anyway? The weather will make it hard, but not impossible. Dan gave this some thought before agreeing. That can't hurt, he shrugged. That storm is getting serious, though. Don't stay out here too long feeling sorry for yourself. He patted me on the back before making for the nearest door. He was right about the storm. The wind out on deck was making short work of my cold weather gear. And already a fine layer of frost had started to form on my lashes and eyebrows. But I decided to stand outside for a few minutes more as I came to terms with the catastrophe that had left me stranded in the Arctic during winter. At the very least, I figured I should get used to being alone. It was a little galing, to be honest. Standing out there, facing the enormity of the Arctic climate, a tiny man stood on a colossal ship that itself was trapped in the ice like a bug in amber, deafened by the wind. I turned and surveyed our little metal fortress, and found myself wishing that I could have joined the others in the evacuation. But the ship was my responsibility, and there was nowhere else for me to go. I decided that before I went back in, I should grab the last of these supply packages. Carefully, I fumbled across the icy deck, looking for the small yellow crate. I found it half-tipped over and buried in a growing pile of snow that threatened to hide it entirely. It was only a small box, just big enough to fit a decent supply of potentially life-saving medication. And I stopped down to pick it up with both hands, before noticing that it wasn't alone. Another package was on top of it, no bigger than a ring box. Without thinking, I grabbed it. Stuffed it in my pocket and I hurried back indoors. I didn't feel much better once inside, despite the warmth and the light. There was something awfully lonely about the way the metal corridor beckoned ahead of me in eerie silence. The ship was normally a hive of activity, but now it felt derelict and faintly sinister, and with near hurricane winds just beyond the metal walls, there was the claustrophobic sensation of being trapped in a cavern deep beneath the earth, a constant reminder of the enormous forces pressing down on you, threatening to crush you. I stripped out of my coat and shook it free of melting ice water before reaching into the pocket and removing the tiny package. The drone could only bring a single item, so where did this second one come from? I wondered. Holding it up to the light, I saw that it was a rough-looking thing. A tiny box made of poorly cut wood, wrapped in ragged fabric and tied together with a peculiar waxy string. It came undone easily enough, revealing some old hay and a tiny thumb-sized piece of coal. Oh, that's just the weirdest frickin' thumping. The sound came from behind me, a hard object striking the door that I had been leaning against. 
I cried out and left away, instinctively reaching out to open the door under the assumption that somebody was stuck outside. But something made me hesitate at the last moment. I couldn't say what. Just a vague sense that the fist that had hammered against the door was not pleading for help. And who on earth could be out there? Everyone is inside. I turned back and I looked down the corridor. It was uncomfortably dark. What few lights aligned the walls were flickering and weak. Dan, I cried hoping that he would appear, but nothing responded to my voice. I cranked the door open by an inch, peered into the furious white gloom that lay outside, and I slammed it shut before any more of the cold could get inside. There was nothing out there, obviously. Any noise must have been made by something loose getting thrown around, or perhaps the metal shrinking as the temperatures had dropped. And just the wind. I muttered to myself while thumbing the piece of coal that I had unconsciously put in my pocket. Nothing to be worried. Mike? The radio went off on my belt and I dang near jumped out of my skin. For a second I actually thought of running, although God knows where that would be, before I got the better of my nerves and I calmed myself down. Dan, I said into the radio hoping to heck that I didn't sound half as scared as I was. What's going on? You haven't been mucking around in the freezer, have you? He asked. And even over the radio, I could tell that he was deeply unsettled. God, no, I said. Until we could get a chopper out to us, that was where poor Gabe's body was being stored. Why? It's Gabe, he said. He's gone. His body, it's just gone. We found him just as night began to fall and the storm had really picked up. I had spent the last few hours searching the lower deck relying on the tiny disk of light emitted by my torch to sweep each room in the hope of finding Gabe's body. The entire time my imagination was in overdrive, and it conceived a thousand horrible ways that I might find him. But the worst by far was the idea of opening some dark room deep in the bowels of the ship and glimpsing his upright body standing in the corner, lit starkly by my feeble light. It was a ridiculous idea, an intrusive thought that had lodged in my mind. But just like a splinter, I found it hard to leave alone. My mind kept toying with this idea, unable to skip past the awful image of his pallid face turning to face me in the eerie, silent dark. Mike, you're going to want to see this. Dan's voice blurted from my radio, and I jumped a mile at the intrusion. I had only just pushed open the door to some random cupboard when the sound had came and burst the tension that had gripped me. After a brief second spent catching my breath and trying to smooth any anxiety out of my voice, I replied, What's going on? We found him, he said. One of the engineers checked out the port that opens directly under the ice. He wanted to take a look at the staging areas that the evacuees had used. And... I asked. Uh, just get down here. This, this is something else. I made it to the port in question a few minutes later. It was situated below deck, close to the very bottom of the ship. 
It was already open, but standing inside by the doorway were several engineers who looked at me but seemed unable to speak. What the heck is going on? I asked when I noticed that one of them had been sick on the ice just outside. Up there, one of them said while pointing upwards, just, just see for yourself. I stumbled out onto the ice, bracing myself for the cold, and I found Dan with his jaw hanging open and his eyes wide, fixed on the hull of the ship somewhere above my head. Dan, what the heck is? The words froze in my throat as I turned and saw what had left everybody else so shaken. Gabe's naked body had been flash frozen to the side of the hull, about 30 meters up. His back pressed firmly against the steel until ice had formed, and it kept him there hanging freely. His legs, arms, and head were left to dangle loosely under their own weight, giving him the forlorn look of a disappointed child. And his head was so low that it appeared to be staring right at us. And yet I couldn't see anything of his actual expression. The lights on deck were directly overhead and cast his face in harsh shadows. For a moment I was stunned into silence. Part of me was disgusted, another horrified, and another part of me entirely was quietly thinking about the mechanics of lowering a body over the side and then pressing it against the metal so firmly that it froze so completely that it could be left there under its own weight. In the end the paralysis faded and I managed to turn to Dan and say, we'll have to get him down once the storm passes. It had been a long night, one that I had spent locked in my room with the wardrobe piled up against the door for extra security. Even then, I barely slept, unable to stop myself thinking of Gabe's body that, through some dark twist of fate, lay only a few meters on the other side of my bedroom wall. And when my mind wasn't focused on this, I kept wondering who amongst our crew was capable of such a messed up thing. This lack of sleep left me groggy and disgruntled, as I stood out on deck pleased to at least see that the storm had cleared for a while, and had the engineers rig me up to go over the side. I'd be riding a cleaning platform the entire time, but I was also to be equipped with a harness that attached both to the winch and the ship's gunwale as a backup. With any luck if the winch had failed, I would get knocked around a little, but I wouldn't be sent plummeting to my death. When it came time to mount the platform, I did so with an outward confidence born from years of experience. But on the inside, I was like a kid with stage fright. It took everything that I had to not rip the harness off of me and go running back to my room. But I had a job to do, and it was one heck of a job. Going over the side and securing Gabe before the engineers applied torches to the other side of the hull to thaw him off of the metal but as the guy in charge, it was my job. Still, I couldn't stop myself from jumping a little when the motor had started up, and for a moment it felt like the floor was going to fall out from under my feet. As I descended, I caught Dan's eyes and realized that he was every bit as terrified as I was. Neither of us were that bothered with heights, of course. Sure, something could go wrong, we spent our lives running an icebreaker between oil rigs in the Arctic. It was dangerous work. No, it was the thought of what waited for me part way down. 
After a minute or two, I saw a lump against the ship's hull appear below my feet. Gingerly, I guided the platform away from the ship by pushing against the hull, making just enough space to let Gabe's body pass as the platform came level. This meant that I was hands-on with the hull as his body rose up to head height. It felt like something out of a nightmare. Up close, I could now see details that had been invisible the night before. Cracked and frozen skin had turned a ghoulish shade of blue, and his open eyes bulged from these sockets like he was on the verge of popping like a balloon. But worst of all were these swollen cracked lips that had been forced open by a glistening object the size of a fist. And tepidly, I reached out and took Gabe's head, pushing it upright as gently as I could but still unable to prevent the frozen meat of his neck from cracking from the effort. It was a red sphere, a little polished orb of glass that had been stuffed into his mouth. It was the size of a large apple and was capped with a brass ring that had twine looped through it. Jesus Christ, it's a Christmas bubble. I cried aloud, speaking only to myself before, looking up to see if anybody on deck had heard my outburst. When nobody appeared, I returned my attention to Gabe. Briefly, I tried to remove the bobble, if only to get a better look, but it had been jammed so violently into his mouth that it had dislocated his jaw and split the edges of his lips, revealing bloodless flesh, as blue as the ice that coated his exposed skin. I swore with disgust for a few seconds before I took my radio and considered letting Dan know, but what difference would it make? We could all go over the details later. For now, we had a job to do. Better to just get on with it, I figured. With gloved hands, I secured one of the loops around his shoulder, tightening it as best as I could without pulling on him too hard. God knows that I didn't want to separate him from that metal with his skin still welded to it. But despite being as gentle as I could, I still noticed the faint sound of frozen flesh cracking as I tugged the second strap tight on his right shoulder. He's secure, I said at last. Tell them to start heating up the hull. We'll do, Dan replied. This, of course, was another part of the process that I had been dreading. It could take nearly an hour for the engineers to heat the hull up to the point where the ice had started melting. That left me dangling nearly 30 meters off the floor with no one but Gabe for company. To distract me, I tried facing the open arctic, but that savage landscape filled me with an existential dread that frightened me in a different way. It was a painful reminder of how precarious our situation was. Sure, drones could ferry us supplies and, if the situation became truly dire, we could always flee to one of the rigs on foot. But that was still a 10 mile hike in one of the most hostile environments on earth. I looked out towards the oil rig anyway, if only whatever minor comfort it might provide. From my position and with the sky clear, I knew that I should be able to at least glimpse the very top of it, and yet even when I saw the very tip of its crenulations, I found no relief. I saw no smoke and no lights. That in itself was worrying, but not as worrying as the tiny bundle of color that I glimpsed about four miles out from our ship at the very limit of the horizon. 
I hadn't brought binoculars so I couldn't say for sure. But I knew that there was only one thing that could left such an unnatural mark on the glistening white expanse that lay beyond me. Dan, I radioed, can you get somebody on comms? Now that the storm's clear, we need to reach the rig and make sure the evacuees were received safely. I already tried, he said. Got one of our engineers up there now. Told them to contact me if they had any luck. Have they? Nothing yet. Any sign of that ice thawing? He asked. Some. I said while looking back at Gabe with discomfort. Beads of sweat were slowly forming on the metal around him. We can try ourselves once you're back up. For now, you've got a heck of a wait ahead of you. Might as well buckle up. I accepted this logic with a grunt and a grimace before turning back to the Arctic where my eyes focused on that little patch of man-made color that I knew could only mean something very, very bad. Where the heck are they? Dan fell to his knees and tore into the snowdrift with both hands, slowly revealing a sled laden with supplies. We both had recognized it was from the convoy of evacuees. Only it had clearly failed to reach its destination. Standing farther back, I counted the other lumps of snow, many with bits of plastic and metal poking out, and I realized that this abandoned collection of sleds represented almost all the gear the evacuees had taken with them. They must have cut and run, I said. Why would they do that? Dan asked as he stood back up. It's not even that far of a walk and their pay would be docked for leaving all this stuff behind. The company specified this material was to be evacuated as well. I mean, come on. It's half the reason that they authorized the evacuation. They wanted their most expensive stuff flown to safety too. There's no way those guys would have left it because the walk got a little bit too hard. I mean, they didn't even try to salvage the important bits. Or even their own personal items. I added pointed to one sled whose cover had blown over, revealing a pile of rucksacks and suitcases. With a gloved hand, I grabbed a nearby pouch and found an old photo of one of these ship's navigators beside his wife. Dan standing over my shoulder, observed with a groan of despair. What the heck, man? He cried. This is messed up. Why would they do this? We've got to keep going to the rig and ask them. I mean, we're already halfway there. Crap, why haven't they come back for it? I looked out towards the rig. It was closer now, but still no sign of life. No blinking lights, no distant smoke. Nothing. Damn, I got a bad feeling about all this. We need to head back. No, we need to go ask those idiots. Dan, I don't think they left this stuff behind because of bad judgment. What do you mean? They couldn't run, I said. Something made them drop everything and run for their lives. It's the only explanation that makes any sense. And when you think about Gabe's body, I mean, what happened to it? You think we got a psychopath on our hands? He asked. I mean, I've been thinking the same, if I'm honest. What with Gabe's body and all the sneaking around, leaving stuff on people's beds? What do you mean? The little lumps of coal, he said. Everybody got one. I figured it was a prank at first, but look, even if there was a lunatic on board, 
somebody who seemed normal but was secretly waiting for an opportunity to go all Michael Myers on us. An opportunity just like this one where help was too far to come. How the heck does one guy make nearly a hundred people crap their pants and run off scared? And how the heck did they do that to Gabe? We need answers. We need to speak to the evacuees. I got a bad feeling. I repeated as I scanned the ice and snow. Maybe tomorrow. I'm not hiking any farther in this, not today. That storm could make a comeback at any time. Should we... Should we try and grab some of this stuff? He asked while pointing to the abandoned convoy. Some of the more sensitive equipment, maybe. Tomorrow. I repeated while trying to hide my nerves. Out in the open, I was gripped by the inexplicable sensation of being watched. Let's just get back on that ship. I think it's time to consider a mayday. Dan muttered as we both stood paralyzed with fear at the lower port. Neither of us could truly believe what we were seeing. Gabe's body had been returned to its previous spot, and now it had company. It's everyone, Dan groaned. Every one of them. I count. I can see. I forced my eyes to wander over the naked bodies of my former crew, men that I had seen just hours before and now frozen to the side of my ship like little bobbles. Even from this far down, I could see clear signs of the damage. Unlike Gabe, they hadn't been dead long enough for their blood to coagulate. Their wounds had bled freely for at least a few minutes before the cold had sealed them. So that below, many of the bodies were burgundy patches of ice as large as cars. Strange triangular stains that pointed to the grueling acts of cruelty that ended them. A snipped foot there. A missing arm there. A face caved in so badly that it looked like a half-eaten boiled egg. These bodies had been beat up. And even now, some of their wounds still dripped onto the ice below. It's not all of them. I said after a few minutes of inspecting the damage. There's only seven. Someone must still be left on board. The canteen was a mess. Tables were overturned and dragged to the far wall and red smeared the walls in strange almost hypnotic patterns. Looking at it, I couldn't quite escape the notion that somebody had decorated the room with bits of people. What looked like intestines trimmed the windows and draped every flat surface and shriveled bits of black and pink meat hung from light fixtures with old brass hooks. On one of the doors lay a wreath made of something that I couldn't entirely recognize, but which I felt no compulsion to investigate further. All I knew for sure was that there were enough fingers bound in its strange material to account for nearly a dozen people. And in the center of the room lay three boxes, plain packaged, wrapped in brownish paper and tied with a familiar waxy string. But unlike the packages with coal, these were far larger and they also had tags. Dan stood in the doorway, audibly gibbering as I approached the nearest box and inspected the little note. The letters seemed Germanic, and the handwriting oddly ancient and styling. I had no hope of translating it, but I did at least have the sense to take a picture with my phone, as a reference so I could recreate it here. What the heck does that mean? 
I muttered before pulling at the twine. The note made no sense, but it was clear this present. It had been left for us to find. This is leather or something like it. Dan said as he stood by my side and ran a palm over the paper the box had come wrapped in. Ah, oh, Jesus. He cried suddenly, jumping backwards, as if it had given him an electric shock. What is it? I asked. He jabbed nervously at the square foot of fabric that he had dropped on the floor. It's got a tattoo, he groaned. I looked down and sure enough, the waxy beige paper had a faded, bluing tattoo of what looked like an anchor. Someone's messing with us big time. Dan cried as he shuffled over to the door. It looked like he wanted to flee, but when he realized that I wasn't following, he couldn't bring himself to go running off alone. Instead, he waited nervously as I finished unwrapping the box. When I finally opened it, I felt an icy terror run down my back, like a trickle of cold water. What is it? He asked from the door. It's a bobble, I said, like the one that we found with Gabe, only much, much bigger. I lifted it up gingerly, gripping the thread with a gloved finger and thumb. This one was glass, much like the other, but three times the size and its contents were not an opaque red. They were ivory with glimmers of pink and crimson. Teeth. Hundreds of them. I uncapped the top and turning it upside down, I watched as they poured out like little pebbles onto the floor. Many of the roots still had bits of gum attached, and a few were shattered from the force of being removed. But what really terrified me was the sheer quantity. They couldn't have come from the man who had remained on the ship. There were too many. At a guess, it looked like 20, maybe 30 people's worth of teeth, slowly piling up on the floor. Dan, I think it's time to send out a mayday and get the heck out of here. Well, they found the radio, Dan said, his voice a flat monotone as we surveyed the damage to the helm, not to mention what was left of Alec. Is that a Christmas tree? I muttered, only just able to glimpse Dan's nodding head as he confirmed my suspicions. What remained of Alec had been destroyed beyond almost all recognition, barring his surprisingly intact head and the expression of agony painted across it. Otherwise, his body had been stripped and repurposed into a conical shape. His spine, fused with other bones, ran straight to the ground and his skin had been removed and replaced into a strange and new arrangement, such that it had bunched around his neck and spread outwards in a cone where it had reached the floor and it was nailed down with black wooden pegs. It strongly resembled a wigwam, complete with a slit down the middle that revealed the contents within. They made him into a tree, I muttered again. Surveying the gut-wrenching arrangement of his ribs and limbs made to resemble stunted branches that helped prop up the tent. What do you make of that? Dan asked while gesturing to the large glass pane that made up the helm's view of the ship beyond. Normally, it would be clear, but right now it was covered in what looked like thousands of tiny handprints made of blood, and what might have been even crap. 
You might imagine the handprint of a child, by the way, but this was not the case. As small as these were, these hands on these slender proportions of an adult just somehow shrunk down. The effect was bizarrely unsettling, the kind of thing that simply didn't look right. And yet as horrifying as this sight was, it was the smashed and broken radio that truly threatened to send me spiraling into despair. Nothing remained. Even worse, all other spares on the ship had been gathered up, brought to this location, and pulverized into barely recognizable bits and pieces. I recognized the radio from my own office, and Dan's and even Gabe's. I would say that's every last radio on this ship, I said. Look, Dan said, gesturing to the two boxes at Alex's feet, or foot rather, as he now balanced on a single, vertiginous limb. I had to imagine those boxes were the unopened presents that we had left behind at the canteen. Shall we open them? Screw that, I replied. Let's get the heck out of here. You know, the more that I think of it, the more messed up the whole concept is. Dan said as we approached the abandoned convoy. What concept? Just the elves in the workshop, he replied. Elves, I scoffed. A little handprint? He replied while waving his own palm at me. And yeah, lumps of coal decorations. Freaking elves, man. It sounds stupid, but can you imagine being the first guy to describe a gorilla to someone? It's a weird world. Plenty of weird stuff in it. Why not elves? So what? I asked as we continued trudging through the snow. We were naughty. No, I think it's different, he said. I mean, like I said, right? It's a messed up idea, isn't it? All those toys being made by elves. I mean, why? Who pays them? It can't be their natural environment. Pays them? I cried and for a moment I couldn't help but laugh. Yeah, who pays them? He snapped. Like what? They do it for the fun of it. I mean, come on, we've heard that one before, right? Forced labor, but don't worry, they actually like it. They like making free stuff for us to enjoy. I just assumed it was a story, I said. I think we got bits and pieces of something lost to history, he replied. But whatever the real deal is, these things are upset and mean. I get the feeling that we're paying for sins that were made centuries ago. Feels like they hate us, doesn't it? I'm just saying if you think about the stories that we've got, stories that were passed down, it makes sense why they feel that way. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not going to say there hasn't been something of a theme to what we've seen, I said. But let's hold off before we start throwing words like elf around. Before I could finish my sentence, something caught my foot, and I went headfirst so hard that I practically disappeared into the snow. Thankfully, even as I fought against the suffocating white that had enveloped me, Dan ran over and was digging me out before panic could really set in. That helped me get my bearings in as I used both hands to push myself up. I realized at last what had tripped me. Oh crap, I hissed. It's... For a moment my mind stalled as I tried to think of another way to describe what was laying at my feet. There are presents, I finally said. 
Dan knelt down beside me and surveyed the two brown boxes. I think we need to take the hint, I said. I'm 99% sure these are the same ones in the canteen and the helm. The tags look identical. Should we open them? Dan asked. I don't know, I said. It's getting cold. Out of nowhere, Snowball pelted me in the face. It hurt like crazy, and I cried out before swearing violently. Ice had gotten right in my eye and something sharp had lashed my face. Looking down, I saw the remnants of the snowball, and I noticed glass shards glistening in its crumbled remains. Another one flew past and narrowly missed Dan's face. Looking around, neither of us could spot where they were coming from, but the snowdrifts were deep and only growing as the blizzard worked up to full strength. Just take them with us, I cried, and let's get to that rig. The elevator didn't respond to our call, so we were forced to climb the stairs and it was no easy feat. It wasn't just that we were exhausted, it was the sheer weight of despair brought on by the realization that the oil rig was so clearly unpowered. Your average rig houses thousands of people and it will often come close to being the largest man-made object that you'll ever see, but this one was silent like a haunted house. And the further that we went up the stairs, the more certain I became that we would find no one alive. Our evacuees never made it, and the men who awaited them had likely suffered the exact same fate. Here we go, Dan said as we at last had reached the door. That's not a good sign. He added as we both observed that it had been left open and snow had already begun to gather on the other side. We squeezed past anyway and surveyed the small room beyond. It was filled with coats and boots and other cold weather gear reserved for the workers who had the misfortune of having to go down the ice for whatever work it needed doing down there. All of it looked untouched, half frozen in the cold and slowly icing over. That door must have been left open for a long time. Beyond that, we found our first signs of a massacre. Streaks of red along the floor and walls, a lone shoe with a foot still inside a scalp nailed to a door. The further we went, the more we saw of the crew and the damage done to the remains. Some of the ruins had been barricaded, we had noticed, and while most of the barricades had come tumbling down and their occupants dragged out, kicking and screaming from the looks of the bloody finger marks, only to end up destroyed by God knows where in the depths of the rig. Other barricades remained steadfast and intact. At these doors, Dan and I would stop and knock furiously, in the hope that at least a few people had survived and holed up in their rooms, but nobody ever replied. On the few occasions that these rooms had windows, we looked inside and only saw empty rooms, filled with tins of food that no one ever got to eat. Clearly people had tried to plan for the long term, but what happened to them, no one could say. At least it's silent. Dan said as we adventured deeper inside. No footsteps. Man, the heat is on, I added. Dan stopped and sniffed the air, his grimace showing that he clearly understood what I meant. The stench in the air spoke volumes about how many corpses must lay nearby. Maybe who's ever hunting us abandoned this place, 
Dan said, but before I could reply, his words were proven drastically wrong. From deep within those haunting corridors came a canine wail that slowly drifted into what I could only describe as a sort of singing. The tune was alien to me, bordering on pure noise instead of music. But there was no denying that an underlying pattern invoked in me fear and unrest. It was music made for inhuman ears and maybe even inhuman minds. I was close to peeing myself when I realized that it was rapidly approaching opposition. Where's the radio room? I asked Dan, who had experience of this particular rig in the past. Crap. He hissed as he scanned the different hallways. I think it's this way. Together, we took off down the hall that he singled out, and on more than one occasion we were sent nearly skidding to the floor as we ran across a slick layer of half-congealed blood, amongst other things. By the time that we had finally made it to the radio room, our clothes and hands were soaked in a foul-smelling liquid that looked nearly black in the low light. Although I noticed with a hint of humor that neither of us had dropped our presence. All right, Dan cried as we barged into the room and he ran over ready to fiddle with the machinery. I slammed the door shut and locked it and turned around to see what might be the single greatest thing that I had ever laid eyes on. The radio was intact and it was even blinking with lights. And to reinforce the good news, Dan began to cackle with hysterical joy. Oh crap, they did it, he squealed. They got an SOS out. It's been ringing for two days. Oh crap, Mike. They're on their way, man. They must be. I slid against the door and began to laugh and cry with relief. I had spent so long expecting the worst case scenario that this little bit of good news felt like it was at risk of making my heart explode. Oh, thank God for that, I cried. We can hole up in here and... The singing returned. A distant howl that quickly ramped up. Before either of us had a chance to speak, it became a deafening cry and the door behind my back began to vibrate with the chorus of a thousand alien voices. Dan looked at me with utter despair. We're not going to make it, he said. So close, maybe a day at most, but those things will never let us go. We should just open these presents and then sit back and wait. An idea struck me. I looked down at the box in my hand and realized that it might be our only hope. Are you sure about this? Dan whispered as he stood by the door. Much to our surprise, the singing had cut off suddenly. But the rapid pitter-patter of little feet just beyond told us that we were not alone, not yet. You said it yourself, I said. They hate us. Let's give them a reason not to. Together we opened the boxes that we had carried so far and emptied them, and stuffed whatever objects that we could find on hand. Shiny things, electronics, a radio handset, a phone, a watch. We piled as much as we could into the empty boxes, before wrapping them and tying the twine into delicate bows. A gift exchange. Dan snorted as he gripped the door handle. I'm gonna die over a gift exchange. I just do it, I said. On the count of three, open the door and push the boxes outside. All right. He nodded and we both counted down in unison. One, two, three. Dan ripped the door open and shoved the boxes outside. But before he could even extend his arm all the way, 
he was pulled so hard that his face had slammed into the steel. For the briefest of moments, he looked at me with a terror in his eyes. I overcame my terror and began to run towards them, but it was already too late. A grotesque but tiny fist reached out, hooked a claw finger into his mouth, and it was soon joined by nearly a hundred others that all gripped Dan's body and clothes wherever they could find purchase. The last thing that Dan said was a muffled bunch of words that I never managed to understand. And then with a single effort, our hunters dragged him beyond the threshold, and I reached the door in time to slam it shut and lock it tight once more. Help came in the end. I couldn't say how long I was in that room. It felt like weeks, but in truth it was probably no more than a day. But still, the dang near drove me insane. Not just the waiting, but the sounds of claws scratching in metal and strange symbols daubed on the glass outside. I slept whenever exhaustion took over my body, and each time I would await to find new decorations inside my room. Whatever those things were, it was clear that they could have killed me any time they wanted. I had to assume that my plan had worked, but all the same it was a poor consolation given the loss of my closest friend. Too little, too late. When help finally arrived, it came in the form of some very stern-looking men in black military uniform, devoid of any signifying markers. And given the way they set about planting explosives while two of them manhandled me towards a chopper, I assumed they were going to fly me to some dingy little room and interrogate me. But they didn't. They dropped me on a civilian ship and left me to receive medical attention from some very confused-looking researchers. Of course, when I tried to tell them what I had seen and heard, it quickly became clear why my rescuers didn't think it was necessary to beat or threaten me into silence. No one believed me. I mean, why would they? My story was the rambling of a lunatic. The ship was sunk and I was blamed for sailing it right into an ice shelf which technically wasn't incorrect. And the oil rig was lost to a nasty fire. At least that's what official reports had said. I never really moved on though. And even now this time of year threatens to overload my senses. It isn't just the constant reminder of the messed up things that I saw. It's the cards they keep sending me. Each one written in what I've since discovered was Anglo-Saxon, or Old English. They thank me for my gift. Not the box, you understand. But Dan. They thought that Dan was the gift. They took him gladly and spared me. I might find it possible to move past this, to live with the guilt even, if they weren't so insistent on including bits of him in the card. A finger, an ear, a tooth his tongue. Fresh meat pinned to the raw-looking paper made from God knows what, and their notes scrawled in that bizarre Germanic tongue keep thanking me over and over. Thank you, good friend. They write me in the words that chill me to my core, because it doesn't take a doctor to tell that even though it's been over a year since I last saw Dan, the bits of him they post have been freshly cut and taken from a man who must surely be alive. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed the stories. 
Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.